0: My name's uh, TD. My wife, Callie, and I, we have the uh, privilege of leading this amazing church, co-pastoring, and we're just excited that you're here if you're new this morning, and we're going to dive into the Bible this morning, and we've been in a series uh, called Relationship or Religion, and we took a, a break last week when Callie kind of came and preached, but we're, we're going to pick it back up uh, this morning, and this series, uh, I've really enjoyed. I, I hope you've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed studying for this series and just seeing kind of what God's been up to, and really, this series is based on this idea is, you know, could you summarize the Christian faith in a couple words? Two to four words, could you summarize the Christian faith? And, 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 and I think that sometimes in church, sometimes as people who are followers of Jesus, man, church and, and people oftentimes complicate things. And I just think the best definition I ever heard uh, when it comes to summarizing the Christian faith is that Jesus wants relationship, not religion. So, uh, just really quickly, we, we, the subtitle of this series is Confronting the Chains of Legalism, but I always want to kind of remind us, what do we mean by legalism as we kind of begin? So we have a definition that will be up on the screen here. Legalism, uh, this is from Merriam-Webster, defined as this, strict Literal or excessive conformity to the law or to a religious or moral code. If you've ever uh, had an experience with legalism, usually it's typically not a positive one. So we have, we're confronting this idea of legalism in this series, and we're exploring the idea of how we get our conclusions about God. Because so many different people grab the same Bible and come to so many different conclusions. So we're trying to figure out a great baseline and some good Bible reading practices so that we can get a very clear picture of God. If we're believing that the Bible is actually the way that God has chosen to reveal himself, that's where we're going to get a lot of our uh, conclusions about God. And and here's what I know. In our day and age, uh, I, I believe that we need more thoughtful Christians in the church. Because here's, we live in an information day and age where anybody who's a skeptic can Google all the other stuff that doesn't get talked about in church that's in the Bible. What do we do with that? Sometimes as Christians and unthoughtful Christians, when people bring up stuff, we don't know what to do. We get defensive. People start defending on behalf of God, becoming really judgmental in their attitude. So that's what we're wanting to do in this series is how can we be more thoughtful about the things that people can Google that are in the Bible that maybe we don't have an answer for, because these are tough topics. These are tough, harsh sayings. These are things and stories in the Bible where we're like, well, is that the God I believe in, right? So the last four weeks, just give us kind of a review, this is this is the journey we've taken. Once again, if you haven't been along the journey thus far with us, I would encourage you to go back. We're kind of building upon a foundation every week, but hopefully uh, you you grab something out of, uh, if it's your first time this morning, hopefully this it's going to be helpful for you regardless, but there's been four parts so far, and I just really believe that each and every one of us, uh, we're not expected to be Bible scholars. We're human beings that relate to God, that are trying to figure this thing out. I would say that each and every one of us, probably Average Joe, if you are a Bible scholar, come talk to me. We need to get you going, you know what I'm saying, uh, in terms of ways that you can help and really bless the church. But I'm just going to assume that we're all Average Joes. So part one in this series, we talked about an Average Joe type of theology, that when you read the Bible, you got to start with the text. Some of us insert our own ideas into the text. Sometimes we insert our own political ideas into the text, our own American ideas into the text, but as a responsible interpreter of the Bible, you start with the text. You don't take your ideas and insert them. You actually start with the Bible, and you go from there. You allow the Bible to be the foundation. That was part one. Part two, we talked about our approach, that sometimes people get really rigid in their approach to the Bible, and anytime somebody disagrees with what they believe in, it gets pretty hostile. It gets People turn into, like, rabid dogs. You know what I'm saying? It's like... You believe in a different doctrine? Ah! It's like, yeah, that looks like Jesus a lot. Awesome. Actually, it doesn't at all, right? So we, we talked about playing nice with unfamiliar ideas. Education and the way that we understand and have interpreted the Bible, man, there's a lot of new ideas in terms of the ways that we're discovering the Bible and learning how to take this ancient document and interpreting it and understanding it in our current day and age. So we need to play nice with unfamiliar ideas and not hate or demonize people that don't agree exactly with what we agree with, right? Number three, we talked about filters, part three, unraveling common influences and ideas. So once again, this is the whole idea is like, man, sometimes we approach the Bible with certain filters. We read the Bible through a specific lens. We read the Bible through a specific uh, viewpoint that we carried because maybe the way that we grew up the way that we relate to the world, and we use that lens and we apply it to the things of God and the way that we read the Bible. So we addressed, addressed a few of those things that hopefully we can pull those things away and once again see God clearly. And then last, last, last time we got together on this series, we talked about the chronological covenants. We talked about, man, the Bible isn't organized in a like left-to-right kind of a fashion, the way that we normally read books. So we talked about, hey, how do we understand the progression of the Bible? how God chooses to reveal himself from Genesis to Revelation and what that looks like. And we learned a lot about this idea of covenants, which we're going to be talking more about this morning, that covenants are the ways that God relates to humanity. God chooses to relate to humanity through the covenants he sets up, right? So some of these ideas are so like foreign to us, but hopefully this has built a foundation for us to understand. And here were the big goals so far in this series, that we would be people that start engaging with the Bible if we haven't in a long time. That once again, we wouldn't understand that we need to come pick the Bible up off the shelf and expect ourselves to be perfect it's not what that's not what God expects out of us right so I've just been encouraging us man engage with the Bible don't be legalistic about it some of us are like I need to check the box off every day and it's turned into a legalistic practice rather than a relational dynamic with a God who loves you who wants relationship with you I've encouraged us to get into small groups man this isn't it Man, if we're, if we're really basing our faith on a diet of a Sunday morning for a couple hours where we really don't get that much interaction because we're here as a big group, man, man, we, we've really missed it. So we do small groups here at the church where we encourage people, man, get into a small group. Get into community with people. Wrestle through ideas. Wrestle through faith. Have fun together. We have all sorts of different small groups. If you're not a part of a small group, we highly encourage it because we know that hum- humanity uh, longs for community. God designed that within us. In fact, God is community, Father, Son, Spirit. Three persons, one God, as the God represented in the Bible. So inherently within us, we're not meant to be alone, right? And then lastly, uh, the other thing that I've encouraged us in is prayer. Prayer. Man, my prayer is that you would pray and God would reveal himself to be the God and who we are discovering in this series. This clear picture of the God of the Bible. For some of us, we're, we're doubting because maybe we haven't seen God be faithful in a season before. Maybe we're doubting because we believe that church people are like the most horrible people in the world because you've had a horrible church experience. My prayer is that that idea would be redeemed, and it would start with a God who sees you, loves you, understands you. Amen? So that's kind of been a, a review. And uh, this morning, we're going to be talking about in part five this morning uh, something called the Noahic Covenant, the Noahic Covenants. So this is the covenant that God— makes with Noah that we're going to be hanging out in, in, the, in the scriptures this morning. And I, I just want to say this, uh, I've said this every week, is um, the next slide up on the screen, we're going to be doing something called Conversation Sunday. Uh, for some of you, maybe you grew up in church, this series might ha- so far might be a little brain bending. Or maybe you're a person that's just like, I got questions. We want to create a service after we're all and down with this series where we just address some cr- questions that you guys submit. Uh, long are th- gone are the days where we can survive as church being just a monologue. Church is designed in community to be a conversation, so we really want to facilitate an environment where you can ask an anonymous question. Maybe you've had a burning question in your, in, your, in your heart, in your soul, that you're like, I never knew, I never had a space to ask this. Please, um, it could be concerning this series. It also could not be concerning that, this series. That's okay, because here's what I know. The more questions that we ask and engage with, those are the types of topics we're going to be talking about in the future, which I'm excited about. I believe as, as a staff, as, as church people, we are supposed to be people that are good listeners, and one of the things that my job is to be a good listener in terms of figuring out hey what what are people asking What are people concerned about in their lives? I can make assumptions about that, but that's me making a decision in a vacuum. What are we saying as a community, and how do we address those things that are getting in the way of us coming to a full relationship with Jesus, right? So I'm so excited about this. So, hey, submit any question. You can write one down on your bulletin today. Drop it off on the Connect table on your way out. Or you can simply just go to our website or download our app. It's on there under events. And there's a little little box that you can just fill out a question. It's anonymous. once again, it doesn't show your email. it's just anonymous. I've gotten s- tons and tons of them. and I'm so excited about this Sunday that's coming up. We haven't put a date in the calendar yet, but it's going to be coming up after the series uh, in the next several weeks. So look forward to that. Um, awesome. That's, that's everything on the front end. Let's pray together this morning as we dive in. Lord, thank you for the, your faithfulness. Lord, I'm, I'm thankful for how faithful you've been already in this series, Lord. the ways that we've seen, maybe some, some chains of legalism p- p- break. And fall to the floor. So, Lord, would you give us freedom today? Maybe there's chains that we didn't even realize that are holding on to us about the ways that we see God or we relate to God. Lord, I pray that that religious spirit would fall to the floor. I pray that, Lord, your love and grace would be the leading factor in terms of what people experience when they experience you in your house. So, Lord, would all religiousness, Lord God, just be vanquished. And, Lord, we're just so thankful that you are a all-powerful God who who has the power to be faithful in the midst of so much doubt in the midst of so much turmoil, in the midst of so many current events that can be so discouraging and hopeless. Lord, you are the God of hope in the midst of it. So Lord, could we latch on to your hope this morning as we we learn and dive deeper into your word. In Jesus' name. And Everybody said? Amen, amen. Okay, so uh, let's, let's talk about this. We're going to be talking about this morning the Noahic Covenant. So this is the covenant that God makes with this character in the Bible that if you grew up in the church, you're familiar. Noah, Noah and, and Noah's Ark, right? And many for us, that's a very familiar story, even if you didn't grow up in church. But I want to give this definition, once again, of biblical covenants because it's helpful for us to understand what is a covenant. A covenant, simply this, is an agreement between two parties that is legal, legal and binding. Each covenant typically had a history of how the parties walked out this covenant together. This body of literature is called a canon. So this morning, we are going to be not only looking at the covenant that God makes with Noah, but we're going to also be looking at the body of literature that surrounds the events of this covenant, the canon of the Noahic covenant. And this is um, to kind of give us a framework on the next slide. This is the very first covenant that God makes chronologically In relationship to humanity, once again, this is going to help us understand how the Bible progresses, how God reveals himself, right? Like, while creation was happening in Genesis chapter 1, it wasn't like uh, Jesus was, like, talking to people, ministering to people. No. Like, people didn't understand who Jesus was yet because he hadn't stepped onto the earth and onto the scene. So we have to understand that things chronologically uh, play out in the Scripture, but many times we don't think that way. So chronologically, we have five main covenants that we're going to talk about in the the remainder of this series. Number one is the Noahic Covenant. We're going to be working through that one this morning. Number two is the uh, Abrahamic Covenant, the, the covenant that God makes with Abraham. Third is the Mosaic Covenant, or also known as the Old Covenant. When the Bible talks about laws, a lot of these really confusing laws and stories, much of that is involved with what we would call the Old Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant, this covenant that God makes with Moses, the Ten Commandments and the like, the 600, uh, or 603 additional laws that get added to the Ten Commandments. That's the Mosaic or the Old Covenant. Then there's also the Davidic Covenant, the covenant that God makes with David. And then lastly, we have the New Covenant. This is the big one. This is the one that we, are benefit, we, we benefit from. Um, we benefit from some of those other ones and how they're fulfilled. But this is the main one that Jesus set up that we receive as the benefactors for today. And it's so much truth, and there's so much freedom wrapped up in this covenant. But it really, some of these other covenants really set the stage in us understanding how the new covenant relates to us today. So we're going to get into it. And uh, Noah's covenant, really, it doesn't happen until Genesis chapter 9. Not until nine chapters in. So, like I said, this canon of literature surrounding the events of this covenant really are Genesis chapter 1 through 12. The first 12 chapters of the Bible. So, we're going to pick up, and there's a few key events that have happened up to this point. The creationist story. The fact that God is creator. He creates the universe in seven days, right? Uh, And then we have the fall of man. We have sin entering into humanity. And then we have the results of a sinful humanity, we have the results playing out in human history up to this point of how people fell short of the glory of God. Because sin entered into the world, people are failures, naturally. We, we, we fall short of God's glorious standard. We try to be like God, and some of us can relate to that, who have sort of a God complex. I know sometimes in my life as a control freak, I feel like I can be God sometimes. But the reality is we find out really quickly that we fail. Time and time again, we miss it. And and, and so now in the biblical narrative, people, because of sin, people are missing it, and things are getting uh, pretty destructive, and and, and God now is choosing to intervene, and that's where we're picking up this morning in Genesis chapter 6. So let's find that on the screen this morning, starting with verse 5. It says, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. So things had gotten horrible, right? The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. This is interesting, right? He's like, I'm, I, I think we're just going to do a big restart. Just wipe, wipe everything clean. But, verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, Let's, let's go to the next slide here and, and kind of remind ourselves. Once again, this is, uh, this is the first covenant in the timeline. And, and uh, last week we talked about this, this idea of, of God's wrath. You know, a lot of people begin to apply this idea that God is wrathful to every, each and every situation in the Bible where God responds. But this is what's so interesting. God's wrath, we learned last, last time we got together, does not really show up. We don't find out what makes God wrathful until covenant number three. Leading up to that point, we we don't really know what makes God wrathful. But unfortunately, here's where we get chronological issues, is many of us look and think about the flood and we think about God's wrath. And if you actually read the Bible chronologically, you cannot apply the idea of God's wrath to the flood. It wasn't God's wrath that he poured out. We think of a wrathful, vengeful God as, oh, I'm going to just destroy everything. But if we actually take a step back, understand that wrath up to this point in the Bible isn't even talked about, we can actually begin to, when we read that scripture we just read, see it with fresh eyes. See it with new eyes. Understanding that it wasn't wrath that really brought God to make this decision, but it was because of his grief. His, the unbelievable evil that humanity had sunk into. He had grief as he saw what humans had become because of their free will, because of sin. as a result, he decides to wipe the earth clean and start over with Noah, who had found favor in his eyes. We have to begin to delete the idea of wrath from stories that really are not setting the stage for God's wrath whatsoever, and it helps us to understand the way that God is relating, seeing, walking through time with human beings, responding on a moment-to-moment basis as a relational God. So God's plan with Noah. So now we know that Noah found favor in God's eyes. So let's go to Genesis chapter 6 and continue in verses 18 through 22. God says this to Noah. He says, "I, I will establish my covenant. There it is. The covenant with you, how God relates to humanity. And you will enter the ark. You and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, Keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. It's interesting because this is the first mention of the covenants that God's about to make until the covenant actually gets established in Genesis chapter 9. And here's what I'll say about the flood, man. A lot of, a lot of Christians, man, they, they freak out about the flood. Or defending the flood. Here's what I know. There's been a lot of archaeological evidence and Christians that have dedicated their life to understanding what kind of flood was this? Was this a cataclysmic flood that literally flooded the entire globe? Was this one where the majority of humanity existed within the Middle East that happened and flooded the Middle East? Was this one where we, the, during this day and age there was this kind of one continent, Pangea, kind of, you know, kind of a place where people lived that got flooded? Here, here's what we need to understand. That's not the point of the narrative we can speculate, we can have fun understanding, discovering things that actually prove that um, some historical evidence that, yeah, some sort of, some type of cataclysmic flood event kind of happened. There's been things that have proven that over history, but when we start dying on these hills and that's all we think about when we read this narrative, we're really missing the main point of the narrative. The main point of the narrative is this was such a large flood that it literally wiped everybody off except for those who were on the ark. That's, at this point in the narrative. That's. As the reader, that's the interpretive conclusion that we're assumed to be made. But once again, when we get obsessive about the details, it can take us off course to really see how God's trying to reveal himself to us as the reader about his character and who he is in our lives. We can't die on the preference hill of something that's not explicit to the story, but sometimes it can be fun. I like watching documentaries and reading stuff about that. Genesis 9, let's, let's, let's go here. It says this. So after the flood, right, they're safe, the waters recede, Noah's family leaves the ark, and we, we, we find this moment. It says, then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. So God immediately gives a command. Here's, here's the mission. Here's the objective. Go and fill the earth. It's going to be a restart with you and your family. You found favor in my eyes, and now you are going to basically repopulate the globe. A few verses later, we get to the actual covenant that we've been waiting on. He says, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Here it is. Here's the terms of the covenant. First one, never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. So God makes a promise, establishes a covenant, never, never again will this happen. He's making this covenant basically at this point saying that this will never happen. There will never be a flood to the extent that all, all life is wiped out. All life is wiped out. He makes that covenant. You've got to think for a second that how much trauma Noah and his family had experienced. You know, the biblical narrative actually doesn't really describe uh, the the idea of rain up to this point So it's easy for us to imagine That synonymous with rain For this family during this time Would be we're all going to die We knew when it started raining And it didn't stop that if we weren't inside the ark Can you imagine I mean for a second The trauma the stress What was going through Noah and his family Understanding that when it starts to rain Like it's going down right So f- this, was a, this was a covenant that God made To say hey you need to trust me I've commanded you to repopulate the earth. In order to accomplish that mission, you're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to understand that when it rains next time, I'm going to prove to be faithful, and you're going to understand that that rain's going to subside. It's not going to—it's not going to destroy everything. So you see this interesting dynamic between humanity and God of saying, "God, Noah had to exercise so much faith to understand. God, are you actually going to follow through with what you said you're going to follow through with?" And the trauma, hence why we ex- actually after this have a story about. What do we know? Noah, actually, he gets a drunk, right? We read the story about Noah. His response is like, I, 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 he just gets a drunk. He, he, he grows a vineyard and gets drunk. It's like, of course, can you imagine the trauma that this guy has gone through and how he's trying to just manage his way through life during this time because of the things that he had to experience. But he would not need to worry when it rained. He would never again need to get back on that ark. This promise was essential to Noah's ability to fulfill God's command to increase. Only when they actually felt secure secure, would they be able to settle down and do what God asked them to do. Can you imagine, like, if you were on the edge of your seat every time it rained, you're like, you're not going to settle down. You're going to constantly be thinking about the rain. But God, as he proved himself faithful, as we're reading between the lines of the text here, eventually there had to have been a trust established where they said, you know what? God is faithful. He's not going to flood this. Every time it rains, I don't have to worry about it. The peace to settle down and begin again. And then as we read in the scripture, the rainbow becomes the promise of God's faithfulness. It's a sign of that covenant that he made hundreds upon hundreds of years ago that we as human beings actually still benefit from. The canon of this covenant doesn't just stop here. I I mentioned the idea of a covenant and a canon. A canon, once again, is the literature surrounding the events of a covenant. So, there was different events that we didn't talk about leading up to this covenant. And now I want to direct our attention to some other, another key event that happens within the body of literature surrounding the event of this covenant. And it's a few chapters later, and it's a story called the Tower of Babel. And it's going to really help with our understanding of how God has revealed himself up to this point in the biblical narrative. So let's go to Genesis chapter 11, and let's read a little bit about the story. The earth has now begun to be repopulated through the line of Noah, right? And even in the midst of a promise, God is not a control freak controlling what people act and how they how they are, right? They have the free will to rebel. They have the free will to actually commit to God. So now we have an update on how humanity is doing in Genesis chapter 11 once again. And this is what it says, starting with verse 1. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come. Let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Then the scriptures say, but the Lord came down, in verse 5, But the Lord came down to see the city. And the tower the people were building. So this is very interesting, because what the people were trying to establish was a big dig in what God had commanded and His character up to this point in the biblical narrative. If we're just doing away with our ideas about God and we're just isolating it to Genesis chapters 1 through 12, and how the Bible starts and begins, here's what we do know. The people, they didn't want to scatter. But it's interesting because it's contrary to the command that God gave to Noah and his family, that you need to repopulate the earth, scatter. So what do we have? Human beings saying, we don't want to scatter. We need to stick together. We need to build a game plan. And that game plan has to do with the second thing, that they wanted to create their own power on the earth. They wanted to establish themselves. But it's very interesting. Up to this point, God has only revealed himself through two different names. One of those, right at the beginning, as God creates, the name that is uh, given in Hebrew to God as creator is Elohim. The one who is supreme. The all-powerful one. Elohim gets used to describe the power and the glory of God and His majesty, right? And what do we have? We have humanity rebelling against this idea, trying to create a name and a glory for themselves. Then we have the third thing that we need to really identify, and what's happening here is that we have people that are creating a tower that reaches to the heavens. Creating a tower. It's interesting, uh, ancient archaeology and, and people who, who study this have, have realized in, in some of our uh, more ancient areas, they've, they've discovered what they call as these towers called ziggurats. And what ziggurats are were basically these massive towers that were worship, idol worship. Um, they were used to uh, worship the gods that were represented in astrology, right? Used to represent the gods that needed to be worshipped in a lot of the occult worship that existed in the ancient day. So in a sense, we have one of the first indications of this tower that was used as a place to say, I want to relate to God, even though God has revealed himself up to this point. They're being driven to build a name for themselves and allow a God on their benefit that they can benefit from. Underneath the scope of what God's already shown and revealed himself to be up to this point. So it's interesting because the only other name that God has revealed himself up to this point in the biblical narrative is the name Yahweh which is transliterated to a name that many of us are familiar with, Jehovah. In the, one of the songs this morning, we say we sung Jehovah Shalom. So that's talking about the God of peace. It's a, it's a word to describe God, shalom meaning peace, that God is the God of all peace, right? So Jehovah, without the peace attached to it, is a name that represents God, that once again represents God being supreme, the one true God. This name gets used throughout the Bible. So what do we have? We have people that are rebelling against him being the one true God, trying to worship and relate to other gods inside the universe. So we have humanity doing three things that were big no-nos in the way that God revealed himself. He gave a command. They wanted to go against it. He so said, scatter. They're like, we don't want to scatter. He revealed himself as, as creator, all powerful. They're like, uh, we want power. We want glory. He has revealed himself to be the one true God. They're like, we want to worship other gods because we believe that this universe is massive and we've seen what other people are doing in their occult worship, and we want in on that because we don't believe that you are the true God. So God's like, wait a second, and this is where we get a little bit of ancient humor. 11 verse 5, it says, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. You could build whatever tower, whatever height you could try to with your human mind, with your human comprehension, with your human strength, but God is going to always have to go down to your level because he is greater. We get that little tidbit included in there because God's making a point there. I'm coming down to you because you'll never be able to get up to me. God comes down, right, to investigate. And it's interesting because this place is, 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 becomes named Babel, which represents these people trying to create their own empire. So let's, let's look at Genesis chapter 11 once again with verses 6 through 9 here. We pick back up in the story. It says, The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Really interesting. God's saying, hey, humans are pretty intelligent. When humans have free will, when they're able to unite together, when they're able to do stuff even separate from my power and glory, they can accomplish a lot. They created bricks. They created a new way to literally facilitate the building of a massive tower. And God's like, wow, I'm impressed, right? Verse 7, come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth. And they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the wor- whole world. We think of the word in the English language, Babel. Somebody's babbling. You know what I mean? It's like, it's interesting when we, the way that really translates and carries over to the way that we understand the wor- word and why it's used in the English language. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. It's so interesting though, that the, the name Babel doesn't mean babbling. The word Babel literally means the gate of God. Because once again, in occult worship, the ziggurats, these towers that people would create, they believed it was a gateway. Many times what was what was common for occult worship is they would have the priest go to the top of these towers, and they believed it was a gateway for them to communicate. They would sacrifice, make sacrifices, and they would communicate and, and be benefited from gods of the universe, other gods, other idols, right? That was common practice. So they created it on behalf of it being a gate of God, and God allowed it to be named this because he knew when people look back at this event— they're going to understand it wasn't a gate for God. It was where God actually stepped down, confused the language, basically changed the name and allowed the name to be the mouthpiece for what actually happened. This didn't become the gateway for God. This became a situation where people tried to have the same glory as God, where God showed himself to be supreme and the one true God and who he would revealed himself to be up to this point. Next slide. It's really interesting because we have this Babel, which basically means gate of God, in Genesis chapter 11. And as we kind of progress through the biblical narrative, the next similar word in which God reveals himself within this idea of a word connected to El, meaning God, is Bethel in Genesis chapter 28. God reveals himself and talks about Bethel, a house of God, this place of worship. I love it. Jacob the story of the character leading up to Genesis chapter 28, he sees this amazing vision on behalf of the Lord, but he wasn't trying to seek out glory, he wasn't trying to seek things out, and I think this is helpful for us to understand. Up to this point in the biblical narrative, we have people that are trying to create a gate to God, but God, what does he do? Unassumingly, while humanity is going about its business, he chooses to reveal himself to be a God of Bethel. To wherever somebody's walking, to wherever somebody's going, he chooses to pursue humanity and reveal himself strongly. Not something that humanity, out of their own strength, has to try to grab and grasp on behalf of God, but a God who comes down, allows his presence to be revealed, allows a house of God to manifest his presence around a situation that someone wasn't even predicting could happen. The beautiful character of God, as it's revealed throughout the biblical narrative, We have a God that's represented through Bethel, not what people imagined how they would relate to God on their own human strength. A beautiful illustration of God's goodness as we read early on in the pages of the Bible. God's response to Babel was confusion. But one day in the distant future, he was going to reverse what happened to Babel. So, We're going to push forward in the biblical narrative. We're leaving behind the canon of Genesis 1 through 12, the Noahic Covenant. And now we're kind of moving on into the the prophets of the biblical narrative. Because it's related to this whole situation. A prophet, Zephaniah, he's speaking on behalf of God. He says this in Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 through 10. He says, then, speaking on behalf of the Lord, then I will purify the lips of the peoples that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder, From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people will bring me offering. So there's a few dynamics that we notice here. People being brought back together, languages beginning to basically come together rather than being dispersed, right? And then we know that this prophecy gets fulfilled in light of what we just talked about early on in the pages of the Bible and what happens at the early church under the new covenant. Under that last covenant that we talked about in the chronological timeline. The one that we as church people get to be benefactors of and from, right? So let's move on in Acts chapter 2. And we're talking about the day of Pentecost. This is so interesting and in how this all kind of loops together from early on in the pages of the Bible and how how what Jesus has done and through his church that he has established, this all begins to come full circle. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. They're in Jerusalem. It had been known as a hub. This was a place with all different cultures. It was a melting pot, right? You think about your New Yorks, your L.A.s, like same type of dynamic. This was Jerusalem for the Middle East. People from every cultures and people, this was a this was like a, a metro area where like so many different people were represented, so many different languages and cultures, and it was common for them to make a pilgrimage back to Jerusalem many times or uh, once a year where people would come. And they would celebrate. So this was common for it to be a a melting pot uh, in specific times of the year, especially where people from all different types of cultures through the geography of the Middle East would come together. So people are all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there, were, uh, now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. These are God's people beginning to experience God in a new and a fresh way. Verse 6, when they heard this sound, a crowd, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Metis. Medes. Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. like They're just like listing out the dynamics of all these scattered people groups now under the same roof, Cretans and Arabs experiencing God in this new and fresh way. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean in the natural realm at the tower of babel what do we have we have humans once again trying to muster up their own strength and relate to god and relate to a higher spiritual power and it wasn't possible and then on the next slide we get to this new covenant five covenants later We get to this new covenant that Jesus established when he died as the perfect sacrifice to deal with the issue of sin, to allow us to be free people from the weight of sin that many times pulls us down. He died so that we would no longer be slaves to that sin, but we would be slaves to his spirit. God's presence manifests within us, God the person, Holy Spirit living within us as a down payment of his promise and presence living within us until one day we breathe our last breath and we actually are with him in perfection. What Zephaniah prophesied and what happened inside the new covenant was that God brought them back together. And it wasn't through the earth and earthly strength, but it was through the power of the spirit. It was through the manifestation of a new language, a language that when you read through the early church in the book of Acts, you see many times people are prayed over, and and the narrative time and time again talks about the Holy Spirit coming upon those people, and many times, actually, most often than not, in every circumstance, the most often expression that happens is people begin to speak out in tongues or a different language. They begin to speak out and praise God in a language that's representative of of a language that represents one language that was dispersed because of humanity's desire, back to one language that would represent the centerpiece of the church and the church Jesus was building, which was one that was dependent upon a language and a power and a presence of the Holy Spirit. What humans tried to establish themselves, they couldn't. So God set the stage explicitly based on what he did when he sent his son Jesus to die for us, And then we see the benefits begin to play out in the early church and those benefits in which we today get to reap from under this last one called the new covenant. And I'll say this. If you've ever been a person who's, like, interested in, like, the idea of tongues and, like, what is this? This is kind of freaking me out. Like, hey, like, uh, what, are people just going to, like, begin to, like, just, like, shout out in the middle of church? Like, I'm afraid to come to church because you're talking about tongues. Like, we do something called Growth Track. Our next round of Growth Track is going to be in December. One of our classes that we talk about is Spirit-Filled Life. It's, and it covers this topic. What is the role of the Holy Spirit and how do I relate to God through what the Holy Spirit's relationship with me? What does that look like? We address tongues. We address what it means to be a person who's dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And here's what I'll say. Just a sneak peek at the class before you, like, get freaked out about it is we talk about how we're not supposed to be weird about it. In fact, Paul, one of the apostles of the early church, uses the majority of one of his letters to one of the early churches to encourage them not to be nuts. But to be people that are in control. One of the fruit of the Spirit is being someone with control. So anytime we, like, frame something through the lens of this church seems out of control, it seems as if some people have deleted some verses from the Bible that maybe we should start paying closer attention to, right? But that does not take away the deep dependence upon the Holy Spirit that is available and accessible to us because of what Jesus did and because of the benefit of the new covenant. God wants to empower us. God wants to give us the tools that we would need to accomplish His mission on this earth. The tools that you need to be a successful witness in your workplace, in your school, and wherever you're putting your hands to. He wants to bring purpose, empowerment into new areas of your life that you never thought possible where you have influence today. That's the way God thinks about this life and how He's going to use us to be faithful witnesses to bring people freedom and breakthrough and hope based on what, not what we did, not the tower we're trying to build. But on what he's done, what he's built for us, and what he's established for us. And all we got to do is be people that place our faith. Saying, God, I don't see the full picture, I only see things in part. But man, when we begin to exercise faith, whew, God begins to show up in big ways that we never thought possible. It's interesting as we conclude this morning. Genesis chapter 11. I'm doing okay on time, I'm feeling good. Okay. Genesis chapter 11. Nobody falling asleep on me. Okay, good. All right, here we go. Uh, Genesis chapter 11. So let's go back to this. This is interesting to me. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this. Remember this? Then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Once again, that's outside of the scope of God's power and presence working through these people. God was like, dang, like, if I don't intervene, like, who knows what's going to happen? This could get pretty ugly. This could turn into a pretty ugly situation for the earth. The intelligence of human beings creating bricks to build a massive man-made structure. And then we move on. We fast forward to the ministry of Jesus. Matthew chapter 17. Very interesting. The disciples go out. To do the things that Jesus had told him to do. Go cast out demons. Go heal the sick. Go pray for those who need them. This is what he says. This is helpful. Understanding the, the progression of the biblical narrative. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? We're like, we couldn't do it. He replied, because you have so little faith. Faith. God responds to faith. Not us dressing nice or having the perfect appearance when we come to church. Not us creating rules in the rule book of what it means to measure up to God. God, time and time again throughout the scripture, Jesus in his relationship with us responds to faith. He says this, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. What a prophetic reflection when we look back in the early pages of Genesis. Nothing will be impossible for them outside of the scope of the benefits, the power, and the presence, and the Holy Spirit coming upon our lives to do the work of God in this lifetime. And he says, and he reaffirms, I understand what you guys were able to do with one language outside of my scope, but here's what you need to know when it comes to your faith. Have faith to believe that nothing will be impossible when I'm in that equation. I'm backing that equation. I'm empowering you for your life where you want to see breakthrough, where you don't have faith, where you have doubt right now. Begin to have faith like a mustard seed and see me move in your life in a new way because I'm backing you. I'm leading you. I'm guiding you. I want to bring breakthrough to marriages that feel dead. I want to be breakthrough to the places in the workplace where relationships are in shambles. I want to bring healing. And progression in the way that God wants to restore your family today. But it requires you to have faith. And even if you have just a little, I'm going to show up in a big way. And I'm going to reveal myself to be the one true God. I'm going to reveal myself to be Elohim. And Jehovah, that God of ancient days that we read about early on in the scriptures, that we realize is culminated through the person of Jesus and what he's done for us and established for us today. What could be accomplished through his church if we actually began to engage more and more the muscles of faith? Do you see what I see? Do you see it? Do you have the vision that I can see in terms of the vision that I feel God has given me in this season for our city, for this community, for what he could do and accomplish through us as a community exercising under the new covenant operation of faith? God declared nothing is impossible for the people of his kingdom power god withheld from the people at babel has been given freely to us based on the covenant that jesus made based on what jesus did for us this morning i want to invite our small group leaders if you're a small group leader i just want you to to come forward and and as you guys are, are coming forward feel free to come forward right now i just want to i want to conclude let's go back to this legalism definition strict, literal, or excessive conformity to the law or to a religious or moral code. The more and more we get to know the God of the Bible, the more and more we realize that this doesn't hold any water in terms of the way that God relates to humanity, in terms of being partakers of the new covenants. Jesus wants relationship, not religion. So here's what I'll say this morning is, Maybe some of you have a chain of doubt that you need to release. And maybe that's a chain of doubt because of legalism, because of maybe rules that you've applied to your own life. Maybe you've created a flood of judgment about you. God's going to pour a flood on my life. I'm not good enough. At any moment, it could start raining, and I know I'm done for because my life's a mess. I've made X, Y, Z mistake. I've done this, I've done that. You're living under the lie and the yoke, believing God wants to pour his wrath out on you when really you are a partaker of this thing called forgiveness and grace that Jesus offers you. God is not waiting in the clouds with the lightning bolt, waiting to strike you based on a mistake that you make. That's giving so much credit to sin and not much credit to the fact that Jesus overcame sin. Jesus meets us in the middle of our mess invites us on a journey, says, hey, come follow me. And by the way, you're going to have to die as well. You're going to have to begin to die to your own ways. It's not going to be perfect. There's going to be messes along the way. There's going to be progressions of life, unexpected circumstances that are horrible. But it wasn't God who caused them, but it's God who meets us in the midst of us, grabs our hand, holds on to us, and allows us to be people that would never drown in this flood that we've created for ourselves. But he promises to carry us through. For some of you in the room, you relate to God expecting the floodwaters to come at any mistake that you make next. But the truth of the matter is, that is not the character of God. He sees you, He loves you, He desperately He's grieved when you don't choose Him but He has a plan for you and He has a purpose for you and He wants to fill you with His Spirit give you a new life, give you a new capacity and bring purpose to areas that you never thought had in your life with any purpose. There are hopeless areas in your life right now that God I desperately know, wants to bring hope to. This morning, my prayer is that the truth of God's character would overwhelm you. Maybe whatever idol you've created, that does not look like the character of God, but that clarity of God begin to just infiltrate and inform every area of your life. Would God begin to heal those areas of brokenness where you've created a false image of who he is? And this morning, he's revealing himself to you, saying, this is me. Here I am, arms open wide. I'm waiting. I'm waiting for you. I'm waiting for you to receive the grace and forgiveness when you've lived a life of self-judgment, when I've promised you already, never again will the flood come, and never again do you have to worry about this thing called sin because I'm giving you a capacity and an image and a newness where you understand your identity is not defined by your sin anymore. Yes, you'll want to run back to that old master, but the new master is one of freedom, one that has given you a way to move forward, one that has given you resources to overcome and move on in your life and live an abundant life that God has planned for you.